0: Hello and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic, pleased to be with you once again and I have another armful of CDs that I would like to present for your listening pleasure today. April in my neck of the woods I think is the cruelest month because the weather starts to warm up. We think all that built up mounds of snow have disappeared, they're melting, there's rain, yes, but the weather gets warmer and then Boom! One day, snowfall. Ah, that's the way it goes. Could be worse, that's just the way it is. It's all Mother Nature doing her thing. Well, I'm doing my thing, and I'm presenting some, what I think, very interesting music for the Easter season, since that is what it is right now, and everything I'm presenting today, everything I'm presenting today is vocal. And Quite interestingly, it all seems to flow very nicely from one segment to another. So we are going to start with a work that was incorrectly attributed to Johann Sebastian Bach, and I shall explain why. We know that Bach had composed four passions for use uh, in the Easter season in Leipzig, because there are four passions in the Gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Passion being the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only two, of course, have survived, and masterpieces of Western literature they are, both the uh, Matthew Passion and the John Passion. What happened to the other two? Well, some have tried to reconstruct the um, Mark Passion, there's a bit of controversy as to how successful that is, but the text by Picander, uh, still exists. And when I say by text, in the tradition uh, of oratorio for the Passion Sunday that Bach had really established, there are areas of reflection interspersed amongst the narrative of the story of the progression to Golgotha and uh, Christ's crucifixion. That wasn't always the case in the presentation of the passions in in Baroque music, but Bach definitely made a specialty of this. So we have that. What about the Lucas Passion? As it is in German, Lucas? Well, there was a belief that a work that was discovered amongst Bach's papers was a Lucas Passion composed by Johann Sebastian Bach. Certainly his son Carl Philipp Emanuel thought that, but that's probably because he didn't really give it much examination when he was going through his father's papers and all his other property after his father's death. It was thought for not very long that this work was by Johann Sebastian Bach, but closer analysis proves that it is definitely not in Bach's style. Way too conservative. Bach was, if anything, always inventive and did his utmost to prove his compositional abilities. This work, is not of that category, but it's not bad. Now, the reason why they think it was by, or they thought it was by Bach was part of the manuscript, which probably dates from 1730, is in Bach's hand. We're not quite sure who finished it. This would not have been uncommon. Um, The reason two hands, shall we say, or four, involved in, in this score is most likely Bach wanted to study this particular Passion, we still don't know who it's by, thought it interesting enough at least that it could provide something that he could perform in a snap, shall we say, at a uh, Passion Sunday in one Easter uh, year when it's called for the Lucas Passion to be presented. And he probably did not have one of his own ready at that time anyhow, so this would do in a pinch. Now it's not a bad work, but it's definitely not Bach. What we're going to hear are a selection of arias, a a trio, and an opening and closing chorus that I've chosen from a recording, because the majority of the work is in a much old-fashioned style, which is the narrative, and it's mostly narrative, being presented in a recitative sort of style. You can think of the passion settings of the older Baroque composers, such as Heinrich Schutz, to get an idea. This recording doesn't quite know what to do with those recits. They're rather dry, I must say, but the performances of the arias and the opening chorus and the final Lutheran chorale and traditional um, church use that Bach knew very well, they're lovely. And this is probably why Bach thought it was good enough, at least for him, to use at some point in time, if he ever did. We have no record whether this was actually ever performed. They didn't really keep records of this sort of thing. But as I said, this is definitely not by Bach, and it is not the missing Lucas Passion of Bach. That would be the holy grail of Bach compositions, as would a full uh, copy of the Marcus Passion. So let's listen to this. I've chosen, like I said, a few things. One chorus, three arias, a terzetto, two more arias, and a final chorale. You can look at their titles if you want um, on the program notes for this particular broadcast. So I've sort of arranged them in a traditional Bach cantata sort of setting. I think you'll enjoy them. I find the orchestral or ch- um, instrumental accompaniments to some of them quite interesting, and as I said, that's probably what peak box curiosity as well. So let's listen to these selections from an unknown composer, a Lucas Passion. We will hear Charlotte Lehman, soprano, Gudrun Schmidt, soprano, Elisabeth Künstler, alto, Georg Yelden, tenor, the Ballinger Cantorai, and the Kammer Orchestra Collegium Musicum Tübingen. They are all under the direction of Gerhard Rem.
1: just cool. cool. Thank mm-hmm. you. Love me.
0: selections from an anonymous setting of the passion of st luke once thought to be composed by johann sebastian bach but uh, not too long after its rediscovery by bach's son was it uh, c.p. bach in particular was it uh, realized that this was not a work by johann sebastian bach but one he probably knew and was interested in. I think it's uh, nice to hear occasionally, not that often, but occasionally hear selections from this particular um, oratorio. It has its charm and we heard a very decent, rather pedantic though, recording uh, by the following people. The soloists were sopranos Charlotte Lehmann and Gudrun Schmidt. The alto was Elizabeth. Elizabeth Künstler, the tenor Georg Jelden, we also heard the Ballinger Cantorei as the choir, and the Kammer Orchestra Collegium Musicum Tubigen, they were all conducted by Gerhard Rem. Now a work that is always good to hear, and a work that was so popular, it was the most published work in 18th century music circles, it's the Stabat Mater of Giovanni Battista Pergolesi. Pergolesi set this famous 13th century uh, Marian or Christian hymn in 1736, the year he passed away at the tragically young age of 26 from tuberculosis. Pergolesi was destined, had he lived, to be the most important composer in Europe. In his few years as composer, he had already rocked the music world with his innovations in his famous uh, opera Buffa, La Serva Padrona, as well as in this Stabat Mater*. The work was so popular, Bach himself made a version of it, or what's known as a parody cantata. He set a version of it for soprano voices, probably a boy's chorus, and assigned a different text to it, because after all Stabat Mater is a Catholic text, he um, re-christened it uh, and it became a cantata known as Tilgehöchste meine Sünden. Well, we're gonna of course hear the original Pergolesi version. Pergolesi was so famous, even in his 26 years, and such an influence on the composers that were to follow him, Yeah, he's considered a broke composer. It's only because he didn't live long enough, but he's more of that generation of Bach's own sons. And the fact that Bach liked this composition proves that he was no old fogey. In fact, in a slight adaptation of this thing of uh, occasionally assigning works to a composer that we thought composed the work because we saw their name on the manuscript or whatever, publishers were not uh, averse to publishing works by other composers under Pergolesi's name so that they could make money. It's as simple as that, and that's how famous this guy was. The Matter is one of the most gorgeous things ever composed. In fact, Jean-Jacques Rousseau said of it it is the most perfect and touching duet the duets uh, between there are most of the work is duets but there are solos he claims that the opening movement sorry is the most perfect and touching duet to come from the pen of any composer the work is divided into 12 movements for the 12 stations of the cross obviously um but I will let it speak for itself. Some of you may already know this work. I'm going to present to you one of my favorite recordings. It is with the incredible British soprano, Emma Kirkby. She is joined by the also incredible countertenor, James Bowman, the Academy of Ancient Music. Everybody is under the direction of Christopher Hogwood. Here is Giovanni Battista Pergolesi's Stabat Mater. Overwhelmingly beautiful, that's my opinion. (laughs) Overwhelmingly beautiful, Stabat Mater, by Giovanni Battista Pergolesi. We heard a wonderful recording of it for the Loisolier label, which is all under the Deutsche Grammophon moniker now. Uh, A recording, I think, that's still available in various forms, download or whatever. We heard the great soprano Emma Kirkby, countertenor James Bowman, with the Academy of Ancient Music conducted by Christopher Hogwood. I remember still, when I first heard this work in my early teens, just blown away by its incredible passion, yet its rather simple, direct approach. This is quite the antithesis, really, to Baroque music. This is the direction that uh, music was heading into the classical style. Even though the harmonies were not as slow, as we like to say within classical music, Baroque music harmonies move faster. The approach is still um, more simple than one would necessarily expect the counterpoint of the time to be. And this is very much a dramatic effect of of, uh, the change that was occurring in opera as well to be more, dramatic in musical uh musical telling of the story and getting away even from somewhat the set format of recitative aria even though pergolesi did that himself but there was this direction to make the music fit even more so the story and and push the storyline further than than what was going on in the Baroque era. And the person who would take up that mantle would be Christoph Willebel von Gluck, who was definitely influenced by Pergolesi, And both composers were great influences on Mozart. So there's your lineage there. So this is a good time to remind you that you are listening to, I think, some fantastic music, but I'm biased, in my music room. And you're also hearing my chair creaking, which seems to be doing that a lot lately. I should give it a bit of an oil, although it adds charm, don't you think? But it's a comfortable chair in my music room for me. I hope you're settled back on a comfy chair. No, not the comfy chair of the famous Inquisition sketches of <laughs> of Monty Python, but you know, something nice. A settee, Davenport, nice chair, nice cup of something by your side to drink. I certainly would like to hear about all that. If you could all kindly send me an email because i like to know what's going on in your neck of the woods send me an email uh, at capoostadave at yahoo.ca you can find that email address embedded yada yada as i keep saying you can find that email address on the page that you uh, use to listen to these podcasts and i thank you very much for listening i really do i would also like to remind you i have a radio show in Ottawa on station CKCU, which is operated by Carleton University, the Mighty 93.1 FM, as we like to say. My show's on Wednesday mornings from 10 to 11, a nice sort of midweek, mid morning coffee break called Music for a While. I certainly hope you tune into that. Now, let's continue with some more Catholic church music by a 20th century. Austrian composer, one Augustin Kubitzek, who lived from 1918 to 2009. Now who the heck is he? Well, he's not that well known and probably not really that well known even in his native Austria, although, you know, I'm not there so I can't really speak. He was a choral director there as well, but the name Kubitzek might sound familiar to World War II history buffs. That's because his father, August Kubitzek was famous, or infamous, well he was a composer as well, but he was infamous as being Hitler's childhood friend, and he actually bragged about this, so to speak. I don't know what was with his father, but apparently he and Hitler were close friends, rooming together when they were in their late teens, and according to August Kubitzek, they had always remained on friendly terms. In fact, to show his loyalty to his friend, Adolf Hitler, Kubitzek joined the Nazi Party in 1942, which is, you know, awfully late in the game, but this is to show his dedication to his friend. He actually received a letter from Hitler once. with the food basket that Hitler had set in 1944 for, for Kubitzek's mother's 80th birthday. The last time Kubitzek actually saw Hitler was 1940 and really he only saw him sporadically behind before that. But according to Kubitzek, Hitler said to him, this war will set us back many years, you think, in our building program. It is a tragedy. I did not become chancellor of the greater German Reich to fight wars. Oh, my goodness, how to unpack that sentence? Nevertheless, um, the point is, is that Kubitschek had this rather strange, this is August Kubitschek, the father of Augustin, had this almost naive sense that you don't abandon your friends. I don't care who this man is. I don't care if he murdered millions of people. A friend is a friend, you don't abandon them. Can you imagine somebody saying that about Stalin? Well, Stalin had no friends, oh my goodness. But, I mean, you wonder why Hitler had any friends. Can you imagine somebody saying that about Jeffrey Dahmer or, um, or even Charles Manson? Oh, yeah, he led a cult, he killed some people, but he needs a friend. That just seems to be the attitude that this guy had. And he published a book called Adolf Hitler, Mein Jugendfreund, Adolf Hitler, My Childhood Friend. It sold quite a bit, um, and at least it gives us a glimpse, if one really needed it, of their early relationship, what Hitler was like after the First World War, for example. But I sometimes wonder whether or not the sins of the father were visited on the son. In other words, was uh, Augustine his son, which is an interesting version of uh, August, shall we say. Since father was August, son is Augustine. Kind of, uh, yeah, interesting uh, continuation of uh, the family name. But like I said, I wonder if the son had any thoughts whatsoever about being associated with Hitler in this way. Did it affect his career as a composer and as a choral conductor? I have no idea. It does seem to me that there's a bit of this Dad, awkward kind of thing about it. Um, there doesn't seem to be any association with Augustin Kubitzek and any thoughts of uh, fascist beliefs, I don't know. All I know is as I have a recording of four of his psalm settings, which are interesting and 20th century in their scope, useful pieces of music for uh, a choir to sing in a liturgical setting. And we are going to hear a choir from Bulgaria sing these four psalm settings. The four are Herr meiner Stärke, O Herr, Deine Güte, Sei still zu Gott meine Seele, and jauchzet dem Herr. Bulgarians love to sing, and uh, they do have some very good choirs. Their opera singers are legendary. This choir is good, not the greatest I've heard, but it's good. And uh, they do a very decent job with these four psalms. So let's hear the Sophia, Sophia, really, somebody who's Slavic like I am could mispronounce Sophia. Sophia Chamber Choir, Lyubomir Pipkov, that's a choir named after a composer, whose name is Lyubomir Pipkov. And they are under the direction of Theodora Pavlovich. Here are four psalms by Augustin Kubicek. Four psalms by the Austrian composer Augustin Kubicek. I will not repeat the history of his familial name, but we heard uh, the four psalms were Herr meine Stärke, O Herr deine Güte, Sei stille zu Gott, mein Seele, and Jachzet dem Herrn, performed by the Sofia Chamber Choir Lyubomir Pipkov under the direction of Theodora Pavlovich. Now let's hear some real Bulgarian singing. And I mean real Bulgarian singing. Folk music in Bulgaria is considered some of the most complex in Europe. It's wonderful stuff. Singing is such an incredible tradition in this country. Folk songs are often arranged for choral groups. Now, we were exposed to that in an interesting way in the 90s and and 2000s by a series of discs known as the Mystery of the Bulgarian Voice, which to me the title was a bit misleading because it suggested something rather new-agey, but that was marketing, which in a way discredited the quality of the music and the quality of the singing. These are arrangements, usually, all of them really were arrangements for choirs of folk music of Bulgaria, and virtuosic as they were in their original settings, as choral works, they were astounding so there were a number of choral groups that um, sang this repertoire whether as a choir or as a group of uh, vocalists four or five whatever and that's what we're going to hear right now a group uh, on a disc that sort of mimicked the um popularity of the mysteries of the bulgarian voice a group known as the bulgarka junior quartet and i think they're only called that because everybody at the time The four singers involved were young. They're all accomplished opera singers, by the way, well-known in Bulgaria. And these singers are Hristina Anastasova, (laughs) Fanka Konyarova, Vichka Nikolova, and Tonka Koleva. And you gotta hear the virtuosity of this, the, the virtuoso abilities of these singers. It's really quite something else. The harmonies are often complex, rather close, Uh, close-knit, with uh, the distances of sometimes a minor second, uh, major second, minor third. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. I'm not going to say any more if you want to follow the titles and even see who the arrangers were, because there are a couple of well-known names to those who know the uh, Bulgarian choral music scene, and there are those who do, like me. Um, Nevertheless, let's listen to some Bulgarian folk songs in a close, close vocal arrangement stuff that's good for choirs or for a vocal quartet, which is what we're going to hear right now.
2: (muchos) Gugutelegala be panaya na doma ya gugutelegala be parvojorov Petrunkin, Petrunin tayorovo, Petrunin tayorovo. I am not from my mother's <muchos> house. Gugutelegala be yo so ide mari u do yo so ide u doma, do ne se panamari na sreda, ne se pananasreda, ne se panamari sreda, ne se pananasreda, panamari ne se Naneta, the man can, petting, cosi, kit carol, petting, cosi, caro, carol, nis, nozese, more, it's a clica, nozese, it's a clica, yeah, bre petrum, come in, malay mall, bre petrum, come in, malay mall,
3: Di mo di.
2: Čovjerni za tropčo dana, ja nema dana si ležna. Daska na utiđe ja Adena this drop Adena,
0: stuff Bulgarian folk music arranged for choir in a close harmony fashion which is actually how it would have been sung by the supposed amateurs of anybody's village back there I mean the art of music making amongst uh, the dilettante the amateurs dilettante is not a bad word amongst the amateurs is a lost thing, unfortunately. I had an ethnomusicology professor who specialized, by the way, in Bulgarian folk music. I may have mentioned him in the past. Yes, I think I did when I was playing uh, recordings of the great uh, Romanian singer Maria Tonase. He pointed out that Romanian folk music was the fastest in Europe. Well, Bulgarian music is extremely complex from a rhythmic point of view, to a harmonic point of view. The ornamentation, too, suggests that this is music that is to be heard outside, because you get a lot of uh, ornaments, decorative stuff that almost feels like, sounds like, it's wind blowing, if you get what I mean, the, the uh, ornamentations of some of the notes. This is very much outdoorsy music, probably for the springtime, and we heard uh, a group of four singers who were called, at least for this recording, the Bulgarka Junior Quartet. Those singers were Kristina Anastasova, Fanka Koinarova, Vichka Nikolova, and Tonka Koleva. Now, accompanying them in some of the numbers on instruments were Georgi Musurlyev on the bagpipe, an instrument known as the gaida, that's the name for a bagpipe in in that part of uh, the Balkans, actually, and Georgi Nikolov on percussion. Now, the bagpipes in um, Central South Europe, and the Slav countries, probably through the whole region, too, and I can't speak for as far as Scotland, but the bagpipes have always been associated with fertility, Because uh, quite often the skins were made out of goat, uh, goat skins, and, um, well, the ancient Slavs, particularly the Bulgarians, were known for their fertility rites. So I just leave it at that. But the music is very much, really, in my mind, about springtime and even the thoughts of love, which some of the songs are about, which leads nicely into our last segment. You see what I've done here? I said that this episode flowed extremely nicely. I didn't quite plan it that way, but it was probably in the back of my head. Shut up, chair, you're creaking too much. (laughs) Started with a work that was supposedly by Johann Sebastian Bach. And speaking of Bach, the work by Pergolesi was arranged by Bach at one point in time for his own use. And speaking of Pergolesi is more good Catholic church music by an Austrian composer whose name is rather questionable and sung by a Bulgarian choir, and speaking of Bulgarian choirs, let's hear, we heard an actual Bulgarian group singing Bulgarian folk music, and speaking of that, we're sticking with Slavic composers, 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 interesting, Slavic composers, because the last thing we're going to hear is a set of eight songs published in 1888 by Antonin Dvorak, so now we've headed towards the Bohemian lands and the Czech and Slovak republics. These are the Pisne Milošne, or Love Songs. And uh, he published them as Opus 83. They're lovely works that, again, I would associate with springtime. And we kind of need that optimism when our weather is so uh, up and down. It's that traditional thing. If you want a change in the weather in our neck of the woods in Ottawa, just wait five minutes. That's, that's the way it goes. So hopefully this music has been rather sunny for you, colorful. It gives you a little bit of warmth. And so let's finish with these lovely eight songs, as sung by the great Czech soprano Edita Gruberova. She is accompanied by Eric Verba. Here are Love Songs, Opus 83 by Antonin Dvorak. <laughs> i Kisne Milosne, or Love Songs, eight of them, published as Opus 83 by Czech composer Antonin Dvořák. We heard them sung by soprano Edita Gruberová, who was accompanied on the piano by Eric Verba. I think that those were lovely, gentle things to end this particular podcast. A nice program, I must say, of vocal music. Well, like I said, that's it. Uh... There's more next week, so tune in then. Also, if you can, please tune in to my weekly radio show on Wednesday mornings at 10 Eastern Standard Time in Ottawa, or you can listen to it on demand anytime you want, at ckcufm.com on the airways, CKCU FM 93.1. My show is called Music for a While. And I do like to spend a while with all of you. I hope you enjoyed today's program. Certainly looking forward to presenting more good music. I have a lot of it and there's nothing like good music, especially in times of worry. There's a lot of worry in the world today. We all need music to soothe our souls and our minds. And I certainly hope what I present can do that somewhat. Until next time here in Dave's music room, I'm now going to close the lights, turn the stereo system off, chase you out so that you don't miss your last buses, or carefully walk home, hopefully in groups, bike home, whatever you do. I hope to see you next time. Until then, take good care of yourselves. I'm David Kavlovic. Thank you for listening.